You're listening to Women's Cricket Chat with Hannah and Alex. Coming up on today's podcast, we've got another from the class of 2009, and that is Claire Taylor. We talked to Claire about all things MCC, her degree at Oxford, and what it was really like being named the first Wisden Female Cricketer of the Year. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us um, this evening. And we really do appreciate it, like we said before. And I guess the first place but where I wanted to start is just talking about the MCC, because that's how I first met you in real life, not just seeing you on TV or reading about your newspapers. And that for me genuinely changed my life. And I cannot express that enough. And I always say it and it gets a little bit cringy. But the first time I ever got to go abroad was because of the MCC. I went on the Holland tour and that's literally the first time I stepped foot outside of England. And then the opportunities that come with like the Scotland tour and um, going to Hong Kong and China, it was so instrumental within my formative well, teen years. They were formative yeah. years. For it's formative. Yeah, yeah it is formative years, isn't it? But it really did develop me as a person, push me outside my comfort zone. You probably, if you do remember me back then, it, I was very shy, very quiet, lacking confidence. And it really did transform me as a person. So I just want to hear from you very broadly, just to begin with, what are your kind of fondest memories so far with the MCC and what are you most proud of? So obviously, Hannah, uh, you haven't told the world yet about uh, about your uh, airport experience and uh, your eating habits when in uh, Hong Kong and China. Um, With all seriousness, uh, touring is such going overseas to play cricket is such a such a privilege and so important, I think, uh, for players. Um, You know, we've we've been we practice throughout the winters in, you know, wet, damp, dull English conditions indoors. We play outdoors, we play in our league structures and everything else. But but if you if anyone gets the opportunity to go overseas, either as an overseas pro and going a pro, going overseas and playing for a club or a, a state in another country or gets to go on tour with a team from this country. It's just to just to play cricket in different places, to see different cultures and so forth. Uh, really, really important. And I'm lucky in that I've been able to tour at, at a really, um, really, really sort of high level with the England uh, squad. But I've also been able to tour um, with other teams. So I've been on tour a couple of times with the, with the MCC, as you say, Hong Kong and China and uh, the US and Canada. And those tours, are, uh, whilst there is some good cricket being played, uh, some, some really good cricket being played and we get to play against some of the international sides but it's also about it's also about developing the game in new countries and finding out about different cricketing cultures as well that's something certainly I remember from our time in uh, our time in China and so uh, you know in, in China cricket's a very young sport um, and they're just finding their way with it and uh, some skills they managed to pick up incredibly quickly didn't they and yet just to talk to them about about batting and about pacing and innings and why you might make decisions the way you made them. Um, their fielding skills and bowling skills were in- incredible, but they just not had that that exposure. And, and you get that kind of sharing, don't you? So yeah, I mean, tour- touring absolutely, absolutely, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed most of my time touring. There were various points in my touring career, a couple of times, uh, a couple of times in India, just overwhelmed, um, overwhelmed culturally but also overwhelmed physically just with the 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 sort of timing and the traveling and the playing and and the heat and everything and never getting really time just to step away from the game and just to just take a moment of reflection and, and 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 then gather yourself and go again it can just could just all get on top of you a bit in India um, certainly found found that um, difficult at points but yeah all good fun and plenty of uh PG tips and tea bags uh, was the uh, 
tea bags and uh, chocolate biscuits was the way forward, absolutely. Yeah, because I guess with VMCC compared to playing with Englanders, you get to relax into it. It is about fun. It is about the spirit of the game. So your experience as well with the younger players like myself back then, I can't believe it's been literally almost a decade. It was seven years ago since yeah. going to Holland. Literally next week, I think it is, is the anniversary of that. But, you know, life-changing moment of my life. <laughs> but how, like, how important and how much did you enjoy those moments of being able to go out there and play freely and just spread that message of like cricket is a game for everyone? So do you, do you remember we uh, we managed to get Mike Gatting up on the Great Wall of China and we'd taken our cricket bats and uh, 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 and we had a game of cricket on the Great Wall of China on the first day of our first day of our tour. But that camaraderie is, is completely different, I think, in in an MCC tour where you've got such a wide diversity of people on the on the tour, a diversity of cricketing experiences, a diversity of performance and yet what you're trying to do is create a culture a team culture on the fly because you, you you've come together specifically for that talk you're trying to create a, a cricketing culture where you know cricket really is the winner where everybody gets opportunities in the game and across the tour and there is a little bit more freedom because it's not well it's, it's, uh, there's still pride in uh, playing for the MCC but the, the performance levels aren't quite the same although the competition absolutely uh absolutely is the same and you can you can get a really lovely team culture i really enjoyed actually having gat with us on that tour so many stories so much to learn from from him so mike gatting came on tour with us as our tour manager and yeah and brilliant to take a cricketing message to to china and to reaffirm those girls over there playing cricket which is not one of their traditional sports and then to go to hong kong and to play at Hong Kong Cricket Club and again to, to really help with development there. Touring for MCCs on hold at the moment, obviously because of the pandemic, we were due to go to um, Nepal at the end of the last, uh, end of 2020, end of last year. Hopefully, touch wood, you know, we will get clearance to go at some point uh, over the next year or so, uh, probably into 2022 now in terms of organising organizing that. And the reason that we were going to Nepal is we were going to do the MCC is working closely with the MCC Foundation, which is the kind of charitable uh, side. And the MCC Foundation do a lot of really great work in this country with, them, uh, with their foundation hubs. But they also have an international program uh, for the sort of development of, of cricket. And, and internationally, what we're trying to do is to set up this sort of long term partnership in particular countries. So it would have been a so for the MC for the foundation itself, it would have been a sort of five to seven year program of activities in Nepal if the pandemic hadn't come along. So year one happened and you know, coaching clinics and work on facilities and that sort of thing. So trying to put down a, a base from which we can build cricket in Nepal. And uh, so that the men's MCC team, uh, one of them went out there for a tour played some quite high quality fixtures against the national side and, uh, and some of the really competitive sides over there. And the idea being that the next tour over there would have been a women's tour and we would have done some development work with the women's and girls sides that, that, that exist and done some work with players on the players, officials, coaches, all of that sort of stuff. So again, to create this sort of sustainable legacy that we could leave. And then the third year, the third MCC tour would be just a more a domestic cricket tour as opposed to a sort of performance tour. So again, really stressing that kind of sustainable relationship. And then we as the MCC might go and tour somewhere else, uh, but the foundation would continue to work with local partners there so that we're really sort of investing in a much longer term sustainable uh, development of cricket in particular areas. 
So that, I mean, that, if we, you know, hopefully touch wood, as I say, the women's team will get to go over to Nepal. That would be, that would be brilliant. I think that's the next, the next area. And obviously you're a life member of the MCC as well. And I saw, is this correct? You're the second female to have been, had a portrait painted of yourself? There is a portrait of me hanging in, uh, in the pavilion. Yes. <laughs> next to Andrew Strauss. Yeah, because I, well, I was such a badger. watched the video of you and Strauss getting it done and everything. I found it so interesting watching it. Um, but what was that like? Because obviously the portrait before you was Rachel Hayho Flint. So tell us a little bit about that magic of actually having that representation hung on the wall. So the whole process was a bit weird, actually. So I've never had my portrait painted before. So I was kind of interested in how, how that whole thing would work. Obviously, you're working with someone who of great talent who is renowned in their field. So that's always interesting to talk to people about, you know, how they develop their skill, how they, what they're thinking about when they're they're doing the thing that they do. So, you know, we had some really good conversation. It's, I didn't realise quite how much time needed to be invested. So, you know, because obviously they take photos and they have photos of you, but the majority of the painting that is done and the sketching and all that is done in a face-to-face environment. So you invest 18 20 hours of your time sitting and I've always found it quite hard to sit still you know you'll 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 see me fidgeting in my chair now so the idea that I could sit still for that length of time and not really move and still have a conversation try and have a conversation it was yeah it was it was weird so I think it's really important that the MCC does commission more portraits more art of, of whatever kind so whether it is um you know through the oral history project whether it's through the museum and the artifacts that they have as part of that whether it's through portraits and so on you'll have seen some of the press uh, about speculating about how we might memorialize Rachel Hayhoe Flint for example so I think it's really important that we mark the important players of the game over history and that we absolutely diversify you know that those those images and and artifacts within the museum so that there's much much better representation of the people who play our game yeah no I absolutely love that and obviously you are chair of the MCC committee as well so ah so oh, here we go yeah so <laughs> I'll tell you. no no it's fine I'm chair of MCC cricket committee Cricket so the committee. chair, yeah, the chair of the MCC is a chap called uh, Gerald Corbett. Uh, it's coming to the end of his six year, uh, six years in charge. So there's the like a main committee, which is like the board of a company, and then underneath that is a series of um, principal committees. Um, so I, I chair the the cricket committee. So that's all the the playing for the MCC kind of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, so that covers a whole host of things. So, um, yes, you're right. There's players and fixtures, both on the men's side and the women's side, and obviously all the tours. We look after grounds as well. So the main ground, all the pitches on that, and uh, obviously all the work that Carl does as groundsman uh, on the nursery grounds as well. The the indoor centre there, the academy, uh, that falls under sort of cricket committee as well. And there's a couple of other sort of key areas as well. So the uh, MCC runs a an advisory uh, committee called World Cricket Committee, which has, it's chaired by Mike Gatting, it has some of the greats of the game of the moment. So Alistair Cook from, from England, it's got Susie Bates on it from, from a women's perspective. Uh, Charlotte Edwards was on it so they they gather together once or twice a year and talk about the real sort of issues and challenges with the game and so that feeds back into the MCC because the MCC looks after the laws of the game so that also feeds up through cricket committee and but it also feeds into the ICC cricket committee um, 
and uh, across into the other national governing bodies that those cricketers are from. So through that, the, the MCC has both, I guess, uh, engages with the world game, uh, but also seeks to influence, you know, the, the, the future of the game and to understand some of the, the key issues. So cricket committee itself has quite quite a wide range of quite quite a wide remit of activities. And absolutely no worries if you can't um, answer this at all. Um, this is a final NCC related question, but obviously we've seen okay. a campaign with Stump Out Sexism. So how have you received that campaign, especially being from an Oxford alum yourself as well? Obviously, the campaign is more than just about more than just that varsity fixture. It is about the structures within the MCC and Lords, I guess. So what's your take on their campaign so far? Mm-hmm. to comment. Well, so this is kind of difficult because I've got the both the MCC hat on and then I'm also uh, vice chair of the Oxford University uh, Cricket Club. So I was actually at once for the uh, 50 over varsity match, Oxford, uh, Cambridge, Oxford, uh, won the toss, I think, batted first 235 and uh, bowled Cambridge out 147. So go Oxford. But so, yeah, we've been having discussions the past two or three years about on the Oxford side about how we were going to grow the women's section. Um, we merged the clubs recently. Um, so the fact that stump out sexism have, have been pushing for this double header, there will be a double header at Lords next year, uh, um, the men and the women 2020 format. So the women will get to play on the main square uh, next year. It was too late to do anything about it this year uh, in terms of the timing and so forth. So actually, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, there was some really good competitive cricket. The uh, lady who opened for opened the bowling for Cambridge, feisty. Uh, Emma Jones from um, Essex bowling a few bounces. So uh, just, just brilliant to see. So yeah, look, let's look forward to a really lovely day of cricket. Um, touch with the weather is good. And we get two really great 2020 games next year. Earlier, you spoke about, you know, making cricket more representative of the way the world is and having more female statues, etc. Was there anyone in particular who you looked up to that made you want to play cricket or did you have mainly male role models? So when I was growing up and coming into the game, the role models that I, I had were a mix of men and uh, men and women, actually. So 1993, I was a bespeckled, wide-brimmed cricket hat-wearing sort of geek age sort of 17 or so. I've just got into the, I'm, I'm in the Junior England setup. I go to Lords to watch the final and JB takes the catch to dismiss the final Kiwi batswoman batter, in fact. We're saying batter now, aren't we? Batter and uh, and the game's over and we rush on the pitch. Brilliant. And all the only one I wanted to meet was Claire Taylor. So the fact that growing up there was a woman playing cricket for England who had played football for England as well and played football for Liverpool ladies. My dad's a big Liverpool fan. You know, there was no bit. She was a massive heroine of mine. So that was that was amazing to go and, you know, pop the arm around the shoulder. And she's, you know, obviously she wants to be with her teammates and somewhere else. So I've got a brilliant photo of her, uh, her and me at that uh, at that final. So so she was definitely someone I looked up to because I played football growing up as well. So but then you kind of look for people that are, you you want to aspire to play the way they do so romper's brilliant she's a uh, bowler mainly though so you know i was starting to look at different uh, batters um and think about who i wanted to be like and i loved the way jb played uh, jan janet Britton. i loved the way oh i hated the way that belinda clark played she was just brilliant and far too good but i loved and hated that i could absolutely see the brilliance but i hated the fact that we were always on the end of it but i never saw myself in them i never saw they didn't play the way i 
fades. I was much more, I, I guess, <laughs> I was much less technically sound than either of those two players. So, and not that the two people I'm going to mention now are not technically sound, but they were much more like me, much more bottom hand dominant, much more 360 in the way that they play. So the Kiwi uh, batter, Debbie Hockley, was someone then, as I'm getting into the England side and I'm starting to watch and play against the best cricketers in the world, Debbie Hockley was right up there. And then on the men's side, that Australian Ricky Ponting, he was another person that I looked at and I just thought, oh, that's just the way that I want to play. I want to be able to take the ball off of, you know, off stump and play anywhere from cover all the way around to mid wicket. I want to be able to manipulate. I want to be that impenetrable, you know, and I want to, you know, take games away from the opposition like like he did, like she did. So that was so I guess as you as you grow up, I always say that um, you know, as you start to progress in in cricket in any performance pathway, I guess you're always thinking of oh, the next levels this. You know, I, I want to be in the junior England side. OK, I'm in the junior England side. I want to be in the senior England squad. So you get into the squad and go training and then you're like, well, I want to get selected for tour and then. You know, you get selected for a tour and you get some kit and you get your shirt with a name on the back and then you want to be in the 11. And then, you know, once you're in 11, you want to be first one on the list or you want to be winning games for England. And I think that every step up, you're looking at other players and, and thinking not that they're potentially, once you get to a certain level, heroes still, but you're always looking where you can take things from, what you can learn. OK, well, they do that or they in that situation they respond in this way and I really like that so that's something that you know I'm gonna figure out and then sort of blend it into my game if it, if it works for me. And uh, just quickly on the other Claire Taylor has there ever been a moment where you've been mistaken for each other perhaps? So people always uh, always got confused we do look entirely different for a while before you know when we had names on our back of our shirts they would they would put Taylor and we both have Taylor. And then some clever person said, well, why don't you put an initial? So they ended up putting C Taylor for both of us. So my first initial is S. So then it, then, I, then it became S Taylor. But then Sarah Taylor started playing. So what do you do then? So anyway, so then there were numbers and it was, it was fine. We did actually once uh, get into a little bit of trouble. Um, so you go on tour to New Zealand, you fly over to New Zealand in a massive plane and you land on a massive runway. And then you go you go uh, to, you know, play at the different uh, state grounds out there. You go on tiny planes. Sometimes your luggage goes on a, a truck instead or whatever. But yeah, Air New Zealand couldn't quite believe that there were two Claire Taylors on the pa passenger manifest once. So and we both turn up and they say, oh, well, you know, we've only we've only got one seat for a Claire Taylor because we couldn't believe that there were two Claire Taylors. So, yeah, that that got sorted out, thankfully, and we both made the flight. But um, yeah, otherwise, we would have been sitting on each other's knees. Romper did uh, offer to go and sit in a cockpit with the pilot, but yeah, they managed to sort it out. I... Have you ever been bowled out by the other Claire Taylor? Because I've had it once in like a juniors match where there was another Hannah Thompson and I stupidly chipped the ball up to someone and it so it was bowled Hannah Thompson, batter Hannah Thompson. Brilliant. Undoubtedly, I have been. I, I've been out to Claire Taylor in county championships. I used to struggle to score off her in when we were in Berkshire, we were playing against Yorkshire in county championship fixtures or and and it was always 
she would she was she always had a glint in her eye when she was bowling at me so there was always a bit of extra banter and a bit we're both um founding members of the pg tips gang which was um so when you go on tour you know you, you definitely have groups of players that hang out with each other so 2005 when we went to world cup in south africa the the team was sort of fell into three groups three there were three groups of five so the pg tips gang the older folk who would prefer to drink tea and have a chocolate biscuit and just sit down and chinwag but the blockbuster babes who were the ones that wanted to watch dvds and videos and play games and that kind of thing they were a little bit younger and and then we had the lipstick the lip no the lip gloss girls that's it who were you know the, the uh, who are the other group who were interested in you know magazines and uh, makeup and all of that good stuff so yeah so romper and i yeah pg tips gang with lucy pearson and uh, laura uh, now mcleod and beth morgan we were staying in um uh, in the High Performance Centre at Pretoria, in Pretoria, at the oh no, that was sorry, that was the High Performance Centre Potchefstroom, and we had like three houses that we stayed in. So those were the the three houses, but they were pretty close to the briefing to the team anyway. Back to a more serious question. So you've been cited as the vanguard of women's cricket by Mike Selby, which I thought was a lovely way to kind of encapsulate your career. Um, but what was it like as you know, being at the forefront like a decade as that kind of batting mainstay for the England side and obviously contributing ridiculously throughout those years, becoming like leading run scorer in the 2009 World Cup. Obviously that year was a double win for World Cups as well as retaining the Ashes and being the ICC Player of the Year. There's so many achievements that we can talk about, but obviously we're limited on time. So if you can share some thoughts about 2009 as a whole. I guess the first thing I'm going to say is that that whole like standing on the shoulders of greats and I'm going to say it in two different ways so the the women's game is always the product of the people who've come before you so it's if I change the game in some way it was because it was already changing and it's easier to push against a slightly open door, isn't it? So, so there've been people in the game before me who'd already started to started to professionalise. So that group that came through the generation before my, myself, who you know were in the England setup when the, the Women's Cricket Association was merged with the ECB. So Barbara Daniels and the people in that kind of era who had started to professionalise the game. And I know that we're going to talk about the intended and unintended consequences of that later. But also, from a personal perspective, things like 2009 don't just happen because of what I did in 2009. That year, I can probably go back three years or so, four years or so, into the summer, late summer of 2005. Oh, no. Uh, let, no, let's go back to the sort of late spring of 2005 and we've just come back from South Africa and we got kicked out of the, we lost in the semi-final to us, to a rampant Australia team who then went on to win the 2005 World Cup. And that was a real moment of reckoning because, you know, the the things, I mean, it's not a professional game, so you, you have to make a choice. Do you, do you carry on working in a kind of career because that's, you know, that's what you want and what you need because you need to earn money. You there's this kind of life plan isn't there that you'll go to university you'll get a decent you'll get a job hopefully a decent job and you'll start working your way up and at some point you'll be able if you want to you might be able to buy a house and you know and then relationships and kids and there's all of that sort of stuff but if you're an international sports person particularly in a sport that's not pro whether you're female or male then you have there's choices that you have to make so having given up my graduate job having um 
sort of uh, said goodbye to my flatmates in London and moved back in with mum and dad and winters in New Zealand and summers back over here and you know pretty hand to mouth on the finance side and you know working in cricket coaching or working as whatever I could whatever temp jobs I could find whether that was in care or whether that was in some office somewhere answering phones just so that you know you could continue to make steps 2005 and you know that whole goal you know you talked about world domination (laughs) earlier um, that became our catchphrase in 2009 which I'll come back to but you know it, it hadn't happened in 2005 and you get this realization that you've given up so much over the past sort of four years to try and be brilliant at a given point in a world cup and your team be brilliant and win a world cup that um yeah so there was a real moment there where my parents were questioning the sacrifices that I'd made why don't I go back to work and actually I realized over that spring summer period that I did act I did need to go back to work. I did need something other than cricket. So that 2009, not even, it's not even a moment. It's a, it's a, hopefully it felt, it felt like a plateauing because um, each step that was taken from 2005, you know, going back to work with Mark Lane, change, slightly changing things about the way that I played so that I was much more responsible as a player, uh, much more about the team, much more about the, the team's objecting. So they're kind of, sublimation if you like of the personal ego into the team environment something we talked a lot about but I talked a lot about it as a sort of sports psych folk but as a team we also talked about it and how we could how we could grow and develop and and, and be much tighter as a team and and that creating that sort of foundation for a want of a better word where everybody is pulling together in the same direction everybody is building their skills and the things that were happening off the pitch at that time were quite key as well so the sort of early to mid 2000s, the, the sort of expectations of international players were starting to ramp up. So it became more and more difficult to be anything other than a sort of semi-pro cricketer or a student. So, but it was really difficult to hold down a job. And, you know, so we did a sort of player survey. We weren't unionized, we weren't members of the PCA or anything, but we did a player survey and we said, right, well, you know, what's happening? How many days a year are you committing to cricket? Because we weren't being paid. We got a little bit of money from the lottery. It wasn't enough to mean that you didn't have to work. It was like maximum five grand a year for living costs. So, you know, we could go back to the ECB and say, look, this is the actual commitment you're asking of us here. You know, can we have something in return? So, so we start to sort of build those things up. And that's the kind of start point. I think, you know, when you start to measure some of those things and say, commitment looks like this, 160 days, it's, you know, two thirds, two thirds of a real job, you know, so what can you start to do for us? And that's where the chance to shine things started to kick in and all of that. So we're starting to see at that point, the professionalization on the pitch and the slow, real slow burn of the of the movement of professional uh, professionalization off the pitch. Getting back to sort of 2009, uh, world domination was absolutely the the target was the objective. We knew that we would never have another year like it. We would never have another year with a with that squad together. You know, a young young Catherine Brunt. We've got the excitement of Sarah Taylor. We've got the experience, Charlotte Edwards, myself, and there's some really exciting, exciting players. Uh, Isha opening the bowling, you know, Nikki Shaw in that that uh, performance in the final of the uh, One Day World Cup, and then a 2020 World Cup, a One Day series against Australia, and a, a Test match against Australia as well. So just you know, we knew we would never have that opportunity again. And we'd come off the back of an unbeaten summer 
against uh, India, India and South Africa the year before. We're pretty confident going into the year, but I think I think we just we peaked. We did peak well. And then we just, as I said, plateauing, just tried to, to plateau through and to keep going and keep those performance standards as, as, as high as possible. Ask me some specific questions about 2009 and I can talk more specifically, but um, yeah. Just on 2009, did you feel a sense of pressure to win both the World Cups, considering you'd won the ODI one first and then the T20 one was at home in England? Was there more pressure because it was at home or were you guys just taking each match as it comes I think we were looking at the history of the women's game and performance at world cups it generally goes to whichever of the major nations is at home I think the only outlier on that was was it 97 when Australia won in in India Uh, but generally it's followed it's followed the home nation so we knew that that 2009 trip to Australia was going to be really hard but we were, you know, we, we knew we could uh, win win that World Cup, and so we we bring that one uh, we bring that one home. And I think that we knew that we could absolutely get out of the group stages. We had a similar group. I think we had exactly the same group for the 2020 World Cup, which was England and the three subcontinent nations, so India, Sri Lanka, and Pakistan. So we absolutely knew we could um, get out of the group stage and all the group matches were played in Taunton if you remember and we didn't really know who we wanted in the in the semi-final because we knew that the semi-final would be the the most difficult match and in the end you know we got we got Australia at the oval we lose the toss they bat first and rack up 160 odd so I remember that day feeling that we kind of let we'd let ourselves down in the field firstly it was massive so They've, it's a double header. Hannah, you'll have been doing all of that work, looking at the, the kind of media, uh, the results of double headers in terms of how much coverage people get. But one of the things that's less, sometimes less talked about is that if it's a double header and there's no time between the fixtures, the women end up playing with the men's boundaries and the men's inner ring. And the oval that day, the pitch was huge. I mean, they pushed it pretty much right out so we didn't defend that very well and they got to 164 and we'd never chased anything like that in a in a competitive match against one of the the top nations so I think going in and then Sarah was out early and Lottie was out fairly early and there was a lot of work to do but Beth Morgan and I we'd been training so much together uh, both in the gym you know down the athletics track out on the fields with the you know the weights and the the pulleys like from a training perspective and also cricket we'd been up to Finchley and we've been training so we were properly in a bubble we knew exactly how each one of us was going to play and and just that immense freedom that you get from nobody thinking that you can do it I mean what what was there to lose if we'd been chasing 120 everyone would have thought okay England should do this so there's so much more to lose but because there was almost nothing to lose because nobody thought we could do it there's so much more freedom so you can you know uh I used to go down to um to Guildford's to net do my training and Mark Lane would be coaching me and we'd spend maybe you know if it was really early in the winter you know 80% would be technical work and 20% would be tactical work but then when you're getting up to close to touring it's 90% tactical tactical work and maybe five or ten minutes at the beginning max doing any technical work that you want to do so the idea that I, I absolutely knew how I could score 10 12 runs and over against any bowling attack with any field you know I'd done it in nets we'd done scenario after scenario so 
actually there's this freedom and then I already know what we're doing and I knew what Beck was going to do so yeah it, it was ju it's just just amazing and you you're in the zone and you know I've seen the video and I know I can see I'm getting tired but I didn't really notice that at the time and then yeah to get that lovely short ball outside off stump and <laughs> to put it away and think you know well nobody remembers much about semi-finals but we you know to know that we've made the final at Lords, and then you know a few days later and Catherine Bunt takes three for six from the nursery end and um you know Amy Mason's uh stumps are out of the ground and they the bowlers I don't know what they said to each other after that game at the Oval but they met they they had a right old word with themselves so they and they were amazing that day at, at Lord's so I managed to find um, on YouTube uh, is the press conference of um, yourself and Charlotte Edwards talking about that semi-final and talking about the bowling wasn't good enough. And then obviously going into a final, like you mentioned, Catherine Brunt's spell and absolutely like destroying them. But well, I'm going to sneak in another 2009 question then, because obviously player of the tournament as well and getting so many accolades that year, being the first woman to receive the Wisdom Player of the Year title, obviously that must be bring a lot of pride but you've mentioned before as well about standing on the shoulders of giants obviously you were first but who else would you have liked to see be recognized with that accolade from players of the past as well so wisdom uh, has specific rules um about who can be a player of the year in terms of their impact on the and it's generally on the english cricket season from the year before so there's some there's potentially some interesting stuff to talk about about being picked and knowing that um, i was going to come home from Australia whether we'd won or lost and be named as Wisdom Cricketer of the Year good job we won <laughs> good job I batted okay so but you know I look back on you know the likes of um, Rachel Hayne Flint, Amy Bakewell, Jan Britton you know there's a whole host of players from all the generations through who will have had an impact huge impact on the women's game within the summer before and yet, because it wasn't so heavily publicised, there wasn't as much media coverage, because there was never anyone who considered that they could, they should even look at the list of women. There was, they were, they were never chosen. So serendipity from my part that I managed to have a really good, you know, season, both, you know, coming off of the Ashes win in March or so, 2008, and then, and then coming home and we ran through that unbeaten summer. Yeah, I mean, I never looked for it. It's one of those things that there was never any question uh, that a woman would be named. So it, it it was such it was a huge surprise. And how much pride do you take from that now as well? So forgetting about the other names, all about you now. That moment of when you did receive that, whether it was was it a letter that you received at the time? How did it kind of work? Okay, so uh, November of two thousand and eight, ish. Schultzberry, who was the editor of Wisden rang me up and said, uh, I'm on my way to London next week. Uh, he's, he was based in the West Country, Bristol, I think. Can we meet up for lunch? So I said, fine, um, you know, I'll come into Reading Station. So we met up at a restaurant uh, near to the station. And he basically told me, I was expecting, because he was writing for the Telegraph and all sorts of other papers. So I thought he wanted to do a sort of World Cup preview thing, you know, and you've had a, you know, the England team's had a great summer. What are you looking forward to this? How are you going to prepare? All of that sort of stuff. So I'd had a, I'd done a bit of preparation and that went, all went out the window because he basically said, um, so I don't know if you know, but I'm also editor of Wisdom. I'd like to name you as one of five cricketers of the year. No woman has ever been named. Uh, is it all right with you if I name you? So, well, of course, I said yes. 
but I didn't really realize the import of what he was saying. So then I, I went away and I read up and so yeah, just a huge honor to be recognized. It's not what I played the game for and it's not what I, but then of course, uh, my parents knew that I'd had this dinner with Schultz. And uh, so my mum for a, a few weeks afterwards, uh, a couple of months was, so when's he going to write that article? When do I need to buy the paper? You know, can you tell me before? Will he tell you? So I make sure that I get down to the newsagents and I, and I get a copy of the paper. Yes, mum, I'll, I'll absolutely tell you when it comes out. And then, you know, after two months, you were just like, that Shaw Berry, he wasted your time, didn't he? Um, <laughs> so she was, she was none the wiser. I wasn't allowed to tell anybody until it became sort of public knowledge, I think in April, the following, the following year. I think my dad realised uh, but the 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 um the day before the the big announcement, um, I did phone my parents and say, "You need to get tomorrow's times, Mum. Tomorrow's times." Um, so they so they knew they knew then, but not before. This is just a quick one. Um, on your degree, we've uh, briefly touched on the fact that you did a degree. You read maths at Oxford. How? pivotal of a role do you think your degree has played in your cricketing career? There's a couple of aspects of my degree that are incredibly important and one of those is the Ox- the opportunities for cricket in Oxford at that time. So um, I went up, what, 1994. I meet the guy who lives next door to me in student digs and it's a guy called Ian Suckliffe who then went on to play cricket for uh, Lancashire and Leicestershire, first-class cricket. So um, he's already at my college. Uh, We played cuppers cricket together. Um, The opportunity that I had to play men's cricket of a decent standard um, with and against guys who were playing first-class cricket. Another guy, Mark Wagg, was also at Oxford at that time. The structure that was there in terms of the coaching that was available to me, so, so great coaching competitive opportunities as much cricket almost as I could want to play in the summer months Uh, I trained with the the men's second 11 the authentics um, when I was up so that accelerated my cricketing kind of I guess both performance and aspiration as well and by the end of third year at university I was training with the senior 11 I, I left university in 1997 I was on the sort of reserve list the next four if you like for the world cup in India in 97 and I made my debut in 98 so from that perspective Oxford was incredibly important. In terms of the actual mathematics of the degree, I'm not sure. I don't know that you need an Oxford degree to know how to, you know, figure out the run rate per over or whatever. I think that my, I think that earlier parts of my education were really, really important. So, you know, things like, well, just playing so many sports and having a really wide sporting background. So I think I figured out before I made my debut for England at sort of 22 I'd played 16 sports to a pretty high level. So that kind of breadth of activity, different ways of thinking about sport and competition and performance. I think that's really important. Chess, probably quite important. I guess when we do things and other, we don't know whether other people do them or not, but I've been told that not many other people visualise in 3D what the pitch is and yeah, anyway, where everybody's fielding and all of that and have a really uh, clear view of uh, how and where they're going to score. So that kind of, approach I don't know whether it's from maths or whether it's from chess or whatever it is but yeah that definitely helped just quickly also on the picture behind your head how and I were wondering what is the picture of that's the 2009 final 
painted by Jocelyn Goldsworthy. Uh, Goldsworthy. Let me um, give you a better view of that. There we go. It's Lords. It's England versus uh, New Zealand. England are fielding. Uh, Catherine Brunt is bowling. And yeah, that's that day in 2009. I've got a feeling when we interviewed Jenny Gunn, she had that same print behind her. There we go. But um, we're going to just ask the questions that we've had in on Twitter now. So Alex will start. So this was sent in by UK Crunch. who wanted to know, in your opinion, what is the best innings you've played? Was it when you made your highest score, one Lords of 156, the oval semi-final or anything else? I'm going to be really greedy. So my favourite 2020 innings, clearly the oval semi-final just in terms of um, what it meant just in terms of everything else that was going on and being able to get into the zone and unpick the Australian attack to the extent that Beth and I did the one day innings the Lords innings was pretty special just to score some runs at Lords is amazing uh, but also there was a real 360 approach to that and a dismantling of the Indian in fact there's a bit of a theme here isn't it that was a dismantling of the Indian attack and in terms of test cricket, I didn't score that many runs in the second innings. So I didn't get a half century. I think it was a 40 odd runs, but at barrel to beat Australia at the kind of the Don Bradman's home grounds, basically, and to, to win an Ashes test match. That's pretty special. So and that was off the back of Ishigua's nine, nine wickets in the game. Also, just on your highest ODI score, I don't know if you know this, but you're one of four women to score a century at Lords, and you are the women's cricketer with the highest ODI score at Lords. Yes. So Lisa Kitely, Caroline Atkins, Sarah Taylor, and myself have scored hundreds at Lords. And yes, I hold the record for the highest one-day international score at Lords uh, for men or women. I digressed a little bit, um, but someone else on Twitter wanted to know where's been the best place you've toured. Best place I've toured. I love New Zealand, so I, I really enjoyed my tours over there, both in terms of going over to play as a sort of semi-pro cricketer for the Canterbury Magicians and in Christchurch, played club cricket over there, and then going back with England. I just, it's just such a welcoming place. The people are lovely. The cricket is incredibly, or was incredibly competitive, and yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. it did did do good stuff for my game in terms of my progression, but certainly getting into another cricketing culture was a key part someone else wanted to know what was the best piece of advice you've been given or the best piece of advice you'd pass on to someone just starting out so one piece of advice I was given because I got frustrated at getting out or being given out was never let an umpire make a decision so you know be just be very clear with what it is that you're trying to do and if you end up you know getting out it's because you've smashed you've smashed three bells out of it and you've been caught at long off not because you tentatively nicked one behind so if you can you know goes without saying that bowlers can do brilliant things but um what advice would I would I pass on okay this might get a bit deep now I think cricket is really difficult in some way especially for batsmen in terms of there's just so much objectivity about uh, the number of runs you score and that kind of thing. So the piece of advice that I that I pass on, if you like, is that players need to find batsmen in particular need to find a way of sort of dissociating their identity as a cricketer and their confidence from the number of runs that they score. Runs are outcome. Runs are 
you know, you can't actually control how well the person feels it or whatever. What you can control is the way you approach the situation and what you try and do within it. So I'd rather I'd pass on a message about people sort of expressing themselves and being confident in their ability to express themselves as a batter as opposed to how many runs they score. In your opinion, what's been your best win has it been the 05 ashes the 08 ashes winning in the t20 and odi world cup in one year just strictly speaking what's been your favorite moment so it's, it's got to be in some way beating some australians it didn't happen for a long time we were always when i started playing 1998 we were 100 runs behind them they were thrashing us all the time and we got closer and closer and closer so let me say that 2005 we've had that disappointment as a team in the 2005 world cup i've been disappointed in my own performance i've started to make some decisions i've gone back to laney the team has come back together again and we play the Aussies in the 2005 in the summer of 2005 so and I'm not going to say the Ashes the test match I'm actually going to say that when we beat them in the one day so we beat them in two of the one days and the it was two all going into the final match and we had to chase down 250 or 260 odd you'll know the numbers and we got so close but just to be competitive so that first uh, ODI win against Australia in 2005 after I don't know how many years. I love that and there's a relevant-ish question here as well from Vaishnavi who said you wrote something on both your arms during the 2005 or 2008 ashes it wasn't too sure what was it? So I used to think quite hard the day before a game about how I wanted to play the next day, you know, and this goes back to that process thing. So um, not thinking, oh, tomorrow I want to score 100 runs because you're a batsman, you pretty much want to score runs any any day. But you know, how do I want to play? How do I want to approach this? What is my role specifically tomorrow? And so what I do is... This is so showbiz, isn't it? You know, because we used to have to iron our own kit the night before the game or whatever. So, yeah, I'd be ironing my kit in the hotel room and uh, I'd reflect on the, the next day's game and I'd pack my kit away. And, you know, that's me getting ready mentally. And I'd write something on my arm almost the night before about and it would be a word with referring or relating to the, how I was going to play. And a lot of the time that might be anchor because that was my role at number three was to go in for first drop. And, and try and back through to over 45, maybe 42, 45. And then, you know, everyone else would accelerate around me. So, you know, it, it would be a word relating and yeah, or impact or you know, something that was particularly personal. And every time I look down, so I'd write it on my left arm. And every time I, you know, look down at my back record or anything like that, you can see the, you can see the word and it reminds you that that, okay, that's what I'm here for. Don't get too excited about, you know, the banter or the sledging or whatever's happening there. Don't get too excited really about what's happening at the other end. Only get excited. Oh, well, don't get excited. But only be like, it's getting that sort of level of arousal right in a game that, that, and, and a real focus on what it is that you are there to do. I love that. I'm, to be fair, my brain's still imagining the infielders as chess pieces and stuff like that's such a nice image to try and think about we've got a couple more including training with bin liners and that's all it says from sarah pickford sarah pickford okay picky right um so training with bin liners refers to so 1997 i've been come out of university i've pushed back the start of my graduate first job to january because i'm on the reserve list for the 97 world cup so there were four of us that were named as reserves but of course that meant that we had to do all of the training and do all of the preparation work have all of the vaccines do everything that the squad did just in case that you know we got called up because it's quite 
they were away for I think uh, December and, and into early early January maybe no December so yeah the bin liners thing so we had to do the heat training because they were going to go to some really hot places to play cricket so if you can imagine that I'm I've got extra layers on or bin liners to try and or we were allowed to train in a sauna so you can take your pick you know because there'd be people in the sauna with a swimming costume and a towel on and you're there doing like star jumps and stuff just to get ready to play in 40 45 degree heat in in india thankfully now at loughborough you have got that hyperbaric yeah, yeah hyperbaric chamber haven't you yeah yeah I, I i went to one of those in um at bisham but yeah much easier and much less weird looking i'm guessing and she also mentions annoying roommates in sleep e.g cc who would roll in late which i can guess who's literal cc are but you'll have to confirm I couldn't possibly comment on anything of that. I will comment that we did have we did have one player that toured that I toured with who did have to some some kind of nocturnal Tourette's and didn't and didn't believe us. And you know we'd get down to breakfast and always knew the person that had been sharing with this particular character uh, because they you know big bags and not much sleep because they well they mumbled they did say some anyway we won't get into that uh, kids could be listening but yeah so in the end set up this kind of recording mechanism on an iphone or whatever <laughs> come down to breakfast the next day and press play uh, but yeah that happens um, once in under 17s at Malvern my roommate was like you were t- talking all night and you fell out of your bed fell into my cricket bag apparently don't remember any of it there you go <laughs> And then her final question is, what part does the MCC and higher education play in terms of providing a wider range of opportunities for girls and women to get involved, including internationally, as for some reason, FE and HE were not on the player pathway? Yeah, that's a really, I mean, that's really interesting. So that whole idea, if we look back a number of years to that kind of pseudo professional era, as I said, a lot of the girls were students as well, because that was what you could do and still go and play cricket abroad and have access to training. Of course, loads of girls went to Loughborough, you'll know that, Hannah. So, and even today, Loughborough is incredibly strong in cricketing terms and in terms of the franchises that they work with, with all the other sports as well. So. So higher education and that kind of stepping stone before you like have to make a serious decision about what sort of job you're going to have to enable you to play cricket or whether you're going to pull away from cricket and and, and crack on with a career. Higher education has always been really important. The struggle I have with the importance of higher education in terms of a performance performance pathway, though, is that universities finish so early in the summer now, don't they? I mean, especially the ones that have gone to semesters, they'll be done and dusted by the second week in May and they'll the students will go home. So where's the cricket season? If, you know, they've spent two terms training indoors and, you know, just the moment they're about to go outdoors, either they're playing in March, it's freezing cold, lots of jumpers, and their season's done and dusted by the first weekend, then, you know, second weekend in May. So we've got to figure out what we want to do with HE and FE. Um, I think it's essential that um, young cricketers, you know, if we think about it, it's absolutely a, a pyramid of some kind. So that level just before pro cricket is going to get really congested because every year you've got new people coming into it and then you've got people like churning up churning around that and you've got people coming in from the domestic structure who are late developers or whatever. So we've got to support those players 
that they have exit routes from the game if they don't make it. So from that perspective, education, education is really important. So does it, does that sort of higher education and further education thing become about about really great preparation and we feed those players when they you know go down from university back into the the rest of the domestic structure either you know on the women's side into the regional structures and so forth and on the men's side into the county second elevens and so forth just think we need to have a, have a think about that and i know that the you know the ecb's been thinking about where those universities fit within that that player structure be really interesting to see what they uh what they conclude about that yeah it really would be because that was my motivation for going to Loughborough and then I lost my confidence so I didn't was too scared to trial because it was all the England players at the time and I thought that was the only option at Loughborough but there was obviously multiple teams different levels etc but I was still managed to enjoy the game from doing my media stuff because of that opportunity because there were so many cricketers there and now obviously lightning and all those different things associated with the university it's been brilliant to just see that as an option even if you aren't a player and I guess that's the next step is just increasing female representation in other roles not just playing but umpiring scoring and everything else yeah I think I think the more we can do around uh, around diversity around um, making sure that um, the people who are making decisions about the game have an understanding of and an experience of all parts of the game so whether that's diversity from a gender perspective or you know diversity across a whole host of other perspectives so doing a lot of work at um, one of my other hats um, part of the Berkshire Community Foundation which runs performance participation cricket in Berkshire so we're really trying to make sure that our board is as diverse as it possibly can and that we have people who have a great understanding of the needs of disability cricket of the needs of South Asian cricket you know, we're going to do a project in Reading and we're going to try and re- reach out to perhaps a Nepalese community in Reading. Okay, so what does that cricketing culture look like? What do they need? How is it different? And how do other services that we provide need to be different from, from for that community? So I think, I think it's essential that decision makers have a, have a, 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 a broad and as wide an understanding of all of the different communities in our game as possible. I don't know about direct representation, but absolutely you know, got that understanding is key. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I think that's a lovely place to kind of wrap up. So you can go to yoga, which I was going to make Thank a comment you. about how amazing it is to do yoga and stay involved because I saw Eileen Ash did that, doesn't she? Oh, well, there you go. There's another, there's another amazing role model. Yeah. So please do enjoy your yoga and thank you so much. Honestly, we both cannot express enough how much of a privilege it is to talk to you and really do appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Alex. Thanks, Hannah. And best of luck, women's cricket chat for the future. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Massive, massive thank you to Claire for coming on and being a guest on the podcast and helping us to relive some of those iconic 2009 moments. She's achieved so much and she's still striving to help make the game a better place for everyone. And to all our listeners, if you want to keep up to date with everything we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter at WCricketChat and on Instagram at Women's Cricket Chat. And if you want to give us a like on Facebook, we are Women's Cricket Chat. And if you wanted to give our personal personal Twitter's a follow. Hannah is at HannahT1194 and I'm at Alex Jane Pereira. This has been Women's Cricket Chat. Tune in next time.